1: On this week's episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast, TV producer Jaime Davila and Dominican business entrepreneur and TV host, John Henry. Welcome to episode 103 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a U.S. Latino show dedicated to pop culture, but with a Hispanic twist. I am your host, Jack Rico, and if this is your first time listening, thanks for discovering us. All right, guys. I have a great episode for you today because today we're going to be talking about how Hispanic content is being created for general audiences. And we're going to be doing that with TV producer Jaime Davila. I'm going to be asking him about the balance between creating Latino stories with Latino actors, but for someone that is non-Hispanic and for them to actually like it. How do we do that? How does a producer get that formula right? So Jaime will be uh, chatting with us about that. And also, for those who are interested in taking their small business, if you got a business, any business, and you just hit a wall, and you need to go to the next level, well, there's this new show called Hustle that's hosted by 26-year-old business wonderkin. His name is John Henry, and him and the show could be the solution to all your business problems. We begin with TV producer Jaime Davina. of you who listen to this podcast already know my views about not having enough quality Hispanic content in mainstream media. But Jaime Dávila, a producer and co-founder of the production company Campanario Entertainment, is out to rectify that problem. He holds a Master of Science degree in Latin American Studies from the University of Oxford and a Bachelor of Arts degree from Harvard University. I welcome Jaime Dávila to the Highly Relevant Podcast. What's going on, man?
2: Thanks so much for having me, Jack. Really excited to be on.
1: Yes, and I've been meaning to talk to you because you and I first met for the first time at last year's Hispanic Summit uh, here in New York City, and um, I moderated that, and we uh, talked about developing Hispanic content for general audiences uh, in particular, and um, I guess that would be my first question right off the bat. As a Latino, why develop Hispanic content for general audiences and not just Latino audiences the way Telemundo and Univision do?
2: You, you know, I think it has, it has to be because of it's how I grew up, right? I think I had a very blessed life that I've always grown up with TV. My dad was actually an executive at Televisa in Mexico uh, and also at Univision. He was uh, one of the people that originally brought Univision to the United States. And so I grew up with TV in my... As I
1: understand it, your father was the uh, CEO and chairman of uh, Univision back in the 90s, right? When Perenquio bought it.
2: Correct. Yeah, no, my dad's really was one of the forefront of Hispanic media in the United States, but also in Mexico. I mean, my dad was also a big uh, reason why Televisa sort of had their resurgence in the late 90s as well. Um, and I think my dad would always tell you sort of the reason of the only for success and the reason of Televisa success was just listening to the people, right? Mm-hmm. Like listening to what the general audience wants um, and just providing that for them. And I think I grew up with that my entire life. You know, I was I was bringing my dad's faxes and helping him highlight, you know, ratings information. To start <laughs> figuring out well, people seem to like people seem to like novelas that are in a ranch more than than in a beach, right? And start Analyzing that type of data and to start working together and sort of really figuring out, hey, look, like the Latino marketplace is the general audience, right? Like we're we're in there, right? And so my ex- experience of growing up watching Univision because my dad worked there, but also because it was the only really avenue where you could see Latino doctors or Latino uh, right. professionals um, on American TV. Uh, you really couldn't see that on Fox or NBC at the time. Um, you know, but at the same time, I grew up in the U.S. watching, you know, growing up with very popular media. You know, I grew up in the renaissance of TV with reality TV, but also incredible drama on HBO and AMC. And I think just growing up with that, you sort of appreciate Wow, like Latinos, like me, I'm in this. I'm I love these shows. I'm in the mainstream, but I don't see myself in them, right? I see myself in Univision shows. I see myself in Mexican shows, but why don't I see myself in American shows where I already feel like I'm already part of it, right? Like, you know, speaking to what Tom Brokaw sort of said on Sunday, right, about assimilation. Like, <laughs> right. I feel like I'm assimilated, right? Like, I feel like I'm assimilated. I speak. I was born here. Like, yes, my name is Jaime, but I was was born here. I speak English. I went to really good schools. I worked hard. Like, I don't know. You know, I feel very American, right? That's very much part of my identity. And so I I felt it was really important to start producing content and creating content that spoke to that, to spoke to the U.S. Hispanic person that was like me, right? That, yes, I love my culture. I speak Spanish fluently, but I know a lot of my cousins don't. And you know, I, we love our culture, but we also love America, and I think that's that mixture of both that you just don't see at all, and I think that's what really inspired me to just really start the company.
1: For me, Latin American experiences are not a- equally the same as the US-born Hispanic experience. Like, I don't understand what it's like for me to have to get a, a green card. I don't know what that is. Why? Because I was born here, and it creates a bit of dissonance and sometimes a little bit of, um, of controversy in between my Latin American colleagues because we have slightly different experiences. But that doesn't diminish our Latino-ness because we're born here of Hispanic parents. And to create content around that U.S. Hispanic that is born here, but yet be relatable to the Latin American experience, how do you do that?
2: Well, I would a couple of things. I think just to speak to your point, I, I relate a lot to what you're saying about people sort of saying, "Well, you know, you were you were born there. I was born here. We're not the same, right?" Or "You were born in Me- You know, your family's from Mexico. Mine's from Colombia. We're not the same." And um, you know, I think when I when I hear that type of stuff, I I understand it from a perspective of, you know, I think just historically a lot of forces have always pitted us against each other. And right, you know, when I look at this type of stuff about the Latin American experience, and, you know, I, I think that we should be producing all these type of things, right? I, you know, I think it's very interesting when we talk about U.S. Hispanic stuff and, and you know, Latin, experience, Latin Americans look at it and say, well, that's not my experience. I always say, great, let's produce your experience. I want to produce it. Mm. You know, I think what's interesting is that, you know, the, the issue here is not other Latinos or other people who are providing their experience, right, either be a U.S. Hispanic or Latin American-born I, you know, I I think oftentimes it's the buyers who just won't buy it, who won't allow us to sort of do it. Why is that? You know, I think a lot of it's because, you know, I think buyers don't experience our culture ever. I I, I mean, I really it's 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 not again, you know, I'm in L.A. I base myself in L.A. because it's where Hollywood is. Right. And I and I and I have the viewpoint that Hollywood is not they're not racist. They're not they just don't know. Right? They, they just don't under they just don't experience Mexican culture. They don't uh, live it every day um, because LA essentially is so bifurcated. You know, if you live in Brentwood, you really don't see a lot of Mexicans um, as opposed to if you live in Silver Lake. Right. And so, because LA is so bifurcated, I just think the buyers don't understand how big the culture is, right? How resonant it is. And so, I think that's part of the problem, right? You know, you, Jack, you know the data better than anyone else about how. Powerful the Hispanic marketplace is how powerful the brand is and yet you don't see that replicated on American television screens And so you have to ask yourself why is that well I think it's just because the buyers keep buying shows that relate to them I mean how many more shows how many more shows do we have to watch about middle-aged white people who like no longer are interested in having sex with their partner, right? Like I feel like I've watched that show a thousand times. It's like, this guy's 41 and doesn't want to have sex with his wife. This guy's 42 and doesn't want to have sex with his wife. This guy's 43 and doesn't want to have sex with his wife. It's like, oh my God, like being white must be hard. Like, And, and I just feel like that, that's the thing we just, we see that we see that all the time, right? Like right. we see that all the time. Like that shows we just see all the time. And like we just don't see anything latino we just don't and so and i get it so that's why when there's only a few latino shows a lot of us are are saying like oh well why didn't this show that it's like it's because it's just it's that one experience but we want i want to share that bigger experience and to that end to your original question i would say there's a lot of commonalities between us right just because something is made with a u.s hispanic yes their difference might be that they don't understand the green card or have that experience of having to get a green card or having that fear of being uh, DACA. And I understand that fear and I don't have that, but I can totally empathize and be like, that's disgusting and awful. Right? right. And I would just sort of say like, we, I want to share your experience too. I want to produce content that features Latin American born, U.S. as Hispanic born. And honestly, I think that's a lot of stuff that we develop and we've been fortunate to, you know, we, we have a few shows that are coming out that sort of feature that. But I think it's exactly that, right? Sort of, you know, our show, our, our communities are different. We all have different experiences. But there's a lot of stuff that brings us together, which at our core, it's just, we love family. We love our culture. We love um, exuberance. And I think we love fun. And I think that's something that unites us. And I think we should always focus on those things versus the little things that differentiate us. The because nuances, again, I think right. If we're, when we're fighting, yeah, when we're, when we're fighting those fights, we're doing someone else's job for us, right? I really just feel like, you know, the more we're fighting internally, the more Hollywood doesn't have a united force to say, hey, put more stuff on air."
1: So, uh, Jaime, so then how do you create Hispanic content that's made for general market audiences? And I understand what you're saying about finding the commonalities. But is there, is there anything deeper to that to fully convince this white American buyer who greenlets and distributes uh, these Latino stories how do we convince them that, that we're just like them and that these stories will be liked by whites and, and, and African-Americans as well?
2: I think you do it, look, I think Cabanario's had a very big learning curve, right? This is sort of our fifth year and it's, it's, it's not easy, right? But I think what we've learned is that it's really important to have partnerships, right? It's really important to, to go out there and start figuring out like, okay, who are the people that they're dying from, right? And it's again, it's not because these executives are racist or they're evil, it's just because they have a tough job and they want to they they don't want to get fired so they know that this guy who's been working in Hollywood for 30 years can do the job right he, so they want to hire him so i think a very smart strategy for us moving forward always say like okay well if there are already these gatekeepers the buyers they have their own sub gatekeepers talk to them because they are much more amenable and open and i think a lot of what our success has been has been in doing that we have development projects with amblin with paramount tv with oh, magical wow. l mm-hmm. with Shed media You know, I think for us, we're very keen on partnering up to sort of showcase that, look, obviously, I come at it with a very specific understanding of the U.S. Hispanic marketplace and also the Mexican marketplace. But these people who work in Hollywood also come at it with an experience of story of other producers that have worked with it. And so the more that we can work together and sort of say, hey, you know, let's work together. Let's become partners on this development project. Bring your general market expertise to it. We'll bring our Hispanic expertise to it. We'll tell you about writers that you haven't heard of. We'll tell you about directors you haven't heard of. And slowly but surely, it'll change, right? Like, I'm as frustrated as anyone that it's, it's taking this long. But I think, you, know, even from when I started, I'm, I'm heartened to bet we have Vida one day at a time. You know, uh, NBC at Telemundo, We do have these incredible, incredible shows. And more and more, it's just slowly but surely, right? And I think the thing is, is that we just need to sort of keep up the fight. Mm-hmm. and keep up understanding the how the market how the marketplace works. And yes, obviously we should create systemic change, but also understanding like on the short term, let's work with that and see how we can make change just slowly but surely.
1: So let's go through a couple of the shows uh, that uh, Campanario, your production company, is already working on. Um, one of them is a very highly anticipated Netflix uh, show series called um, Selena. It's based on her life, Selena Quintanilla. You're producing along with her family. A lot of uh, fans are very happy about that as well. Um, And uh, it's a scripted series that's coming out very soon. You're also doing Mexican Dynasties uh, for Bravo. Uh, Red Band Society, Bandolero, I think with uh, Kenny Ortega, Laugh Factory in Español. So there's a lot on the rise for your production company, and I'm sure that... There's also a lot of pressure for you for these shows to succeed because if they don't succeed, it's like, you see, that Latino stuff doesn't work, <laughs> right? So you don't want uh, that 100%. to happen. <laughs> That's
2: <my> fear, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: So um, let's go through this for a little bit. Uh, Selena Quinteria, to me, is an interesting case because she's not born in Mexico, she's a U.S. Mexican American. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. But she's adored and revered by Mexicans universally, whether they're in Mexico or here in the United States. Mm -hmm. How difficult was it to put this together? It's a scripted series. Uh, Why is she so liked so much? Because Jennifer Lopez, when she did it, became an instant icon because of it. Take me through this particular show, and do you think that white America will also watch and tune in?
2: Well, look, I was born in Macau, Texas. So South Texas, where... Uh, Selena was from. And I lo- grew up loving her and idolizing her. And just I think what I loved about her, and I think what, why she so resonated, is how positive she was, right? Mm-hmm. Like how incredible and dynamic and charismatic. And it was just so amazing to see this voluptuous brown woman be proud and be accepted, right? And have success. And I think for me, Growing up, it was always sort of like, how can you know? How can I tell that story or version of that story? Right? It's mm-hmm. sort of like a version of the U.S. Hispanic story. And I think, you know, yes. I've always related to what Selena had to go through because, you know, she again, as you said, she was born here. She she felt American, like she lived in Lake Jackson, Texas, for a part. And she of her didn't she didn't life, even speak Spanish. She sang
1: Spanish, but didn't speak it. Correct.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I think for her, she had a very similar experience. Like you know, it was basically she. The marketplace that existed for her was Spanish, right? There wasn't a marketplace. English market was not looking for singers that looked like Selena, Selena, right? Like, and you know, when you're a Mexican American immigrant, and I think you even see that now today, it's sort of there's a, you know, white Americans expect you to speak Spanish, right? I experienced this in my career too, a lot, (laughs) right? right? Where I worked at Bravo, when I worked at ITD, which is I did, and like I do. But this is an assumption that's sort of like, oh, well, you, you, you are Latino, so you must be helping us with this experience. And so I really relate to Selena in that way. It's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm being sort of forced. I don't mind it. Like, I, I love my culture. But, you know, to succeed in sort of this pop music world that I want to dream in, I have to do, go about it via Spanish, right? Like, Stephanie Germanotta doesn't have to sing in Italian to become Lady Gaga, but mm-hmm. a lot of our Latino singers have to sing in Spanish to break through and make it to the mainstream. And so, and I just think it's a very relatable experience for a lot of anyone. And so I think that's why I really resonate with that story. I'm really excited to tell that story and sort of just tell the U.S. tell the story of U.S. Hispanics through the prism of this of Selena, you know, and, and really sort of just ex, 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 tell people and remind people how incredible she was. Right. Um, that she was someone that was American, right? I think that's the key, and I think that's yep. why I, I think that I'm excited for you know not just Latinos to watch this, but I think other people to sort of appreciate that, like, hey, what you think America looks like is maybe different, correct? And that's okay, <laughs> and that's fine, and that's actually beautiful, and like, it's there's no harm in that, and I think that's ultimately what I I, I hope that series uh, highlights.
1: Have you had a chance to cast the lead for Selena?
2: we're still in the middle of everything. And so I really can't sort of share a lot of details about that. Are you close? Fact that we're doing it and we're super excited. Um, you will, I, I will only say that hopefully in the next few months, we're closer to that decision. But look, I'm very excited. It's, I'm not, I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm very blessed uh, to be in this position. And so, and I, 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 I'm sort of, I take this on with a lot of heavy duty and I know what, what she represents and um, to the community. And I, I know it, right. Cause it's, it's what she represents to me. So right. know that I'm going to be, I don't take this lightly. And we have a great team sort of working together as well to sort of make sure that we really find the perfect Selena.
1: When, uh, when is this officially coming out on Netflix? Cause I know a teaser came out in uh, December
2: that I'm, I'm not, yeah, that I'm not sure yet. That is sort of the algorithm I think decides, right? <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. Yeah. Okay. That, that will, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, soon. All right. Get get excited.
1: All right. So then there's Mexican Dynasty.
2: What do I do? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Ah!
1: It was just me, the stage. Ah! Sounded good. (laughs) And this one highlights elite families in Mexico City. Now, as soon as I heard about Mexican Dynasties, I remembered Made in Mexico, that Netflix already did too, and the backlash about that, which was, here we go again, all right? And this is something I also wanted to talk to you about, which is the backlash for Made in Mm -hmm. Mexico and Netflix was that every single Mexican uh, is not the Mexican that Tom Brokaw probably thinks is Mexican. These look like European Germans, as Aryan as you can get, uh, you know, for Mexico. And, you know, people said, look, that's not just Mexico. Why aren't there different shades of color of Latino Mexicans uh, in that show? Did you, when you did the Mexican dynasties, was that a part of the of the production process? Of guys, we don't want to repeat the same mistakes that that made in Mexico did. Did you do something differently because of that? Or explain to me the cast. Do you have all whites, well, so, or we are were, there different we were, we were, shades?
2: Well, our our show, well, so our shows were produced basically concurrently, so it was very hard for us to uh, sort of respond to any backlash. I mean, we're. You know, oh, so okay. they were really produced at the same time, basically. Mm. Um, and I would say that, like, I, I, I look at the Made in Mexico show and I understand that critique implicitly because I think they called their show Made in Mexico. And look, I love those producers. I I, I don't think they meant any ill will. Right. Like they're, they're trying to ultimately just produce a good show. But I understand the critique and I, I felt it too, right? It was sort of like, well, you're calling yourself made in Mexico. It feels very white. And also like, they're not just like white Euro related, which again, is a real Mexico, right? That colonialism is a history of it. And, you know, it's, it is what it is, right? Like I I'm, I'm, I understand the critique, but it's also like these people decided to do the show. I think the problem is that when they said we're the real Mexico and we're excited because we're Fresa and we like being rich and it just they were gross. I just don't think that they did a good job. <laughs> I think they would have I think that the show would have benefited from a, a few Mexicans in the edit room to sort of help them on that. I think our show doesn't, Mexican Dynasty does not purport to be about Mexico. It's about these three families, right? And, you know, on, on, when we were casting, yes, I was very implicit, like, look, we want to be as diverse as possible. And ultimately in casting, when you're casting, I worked at Bravo for multiple years. I was very hesitant or very open to, hey, how do we, um, cast a diverse Mexicans. Ultimately, that's rich. The people who right. are wealthy Mexicans, who are rich, who allow you into their homes. Like I can't control that, right? And I and I just I want to say that one thing. Like I, we worked really hard to make a diverse. And Capanario is really component about diversity, and you'll see that in all of our projects, like Selena, this one, or you know. But I think sometimes you sort of just are who will allow us to enter into their life. So that's one. Two is I think we do have a diverse cast. And I think what's really fun about our show is that we've listened to what people said about Made in Mexico. And I think we're heartened about how we went about our show, because I think that when you watch our show, it feels completely different and you won't feel that same impetus or that same critique. Our show is really a comedy. It's really a show that's really just about the three families showing how over the top they are and how they're old friends. It's not a show that's trying to say this is what the real Mexicans are. This is not a show that's saying these families represent Mexico. These families represent themselves. And if in the process you find a different representation of Mexico, which, by the way, in U.S. Greens, I don't see a lot of. I don't see a lot of rich Mexicans on U.S. Greens.
1: No, no.
2: So, so when I hear these critiques, I also sort of say, like, guys, like, I understand them. Yes. But there's a ton of other rich groups on TV. You know, we just had this amazing, amazing response for a movie I love Crazy Rich Asians. Right. Is this more like this Crazy Rich Mexicans? Crazy Rich Mexicans. A hundred percent. Right. <laughs> and I think when I watch Crazy Rich Asians, I don't think that's the real Asia, right? I don't think that's the real I think but like, oh wow, like this is a a, a, a world I didn't know existed. And I really hope that is what people see when they watch Mexican Dynasty. It's a world you didn't see existed and it's funny and it's loud. And this is what and that, that these families hopefully you know, show you that Mexicans are not just the typical things you see on TV, which are drug dealers or narcos or, you know, that all our families are self-made, that they all became wealthy through their hard work and initiative. Um, And I think that's really cool.
1: Touching upon that and kind of building off of uh, the show Mexican Dynasties, you know, one of the controversies, and we've talked about it on this podcast already, is uh, I'm not sure if you had a chance to see Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, But Yalita Paricio is nominated now for Best Actress. She's indigenous. Okay? Now, that could be like one of those unicorn moments never to be repeated ever again. Uh, First-time actress, wasn't interested in acting, and all of a sudden got an Oscar, and there's been so many female Latina Mexican actresses who've been in this business forever and have never even gotten a whiff of an award. So um, Mm -hmm. the conversation then spawned off debates on why producers... Why casting directors, why directors themselves, aren't hiring indigenous faces, whether it's Spanish-language TV or Hollywood? Why do you think that is? You're a producer. What is the fear? Is the fear that there's going to be outrage if you put in a Yalitza Paricio outside of Roma in any novella, in any scripted series, in any reality series? What is the fear of indigenous faces?
2: You know what? I... I, I, I think you're, you're probably right that that's probably what the fear was, right? Just sort of with the history of racism and that sort of existed in Mexico and all these things that sort of um, that you see all over the world, right? That sort of just people sort of not liking, unfortunately, their, their, their beautiful dark skin. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't have those conversations, right? Like, I don't have those conversations here of saying, like, we shouldn't put indigenous people. Like, I see something like Roma and I see it successful and I think it's going to win the best picture. And I think that, again, that doesn't, doesn't that prove that, yeah, people want to see indigenous people. Like I, 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 I think that, yes, that fear may have existed, but it just seems like every day we have more evidence, Black Panther, Coco, Roma of like these things that we, that maybe people thought were a thing don't exist. So I think my daily conversations as a producer, when I talk to everyone in Hollywood are are that it's like, I, I don't, I'm coming at it from a place of, I just come from evidence. Like, Indigenous Black Panther, Cocoa, like these things work and they not only work in the US, they work internationally Mm -hmm. and get billions of dollars. Like this is this 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 fear that maybe you had for I don't even know why, because maybe there was some focus group done in the 80s that I wasn't there of. But like all I can tell you is that when I go to these rooms and I and I talk to these people, I I, they are much more receptive. They they're looking at us and they're saying, Great, who are these new faces? I think mm-hmm. one of the drawbacks we have is that exactly what you said earlier is that like we don't have a lot because a lot of indigenous people exactly that like don't haven't gone into it. And so I'm hoping that people get inspired by Elisa and go more into it and become more actors because that's what we need. We need more and more and more indigenous so that we can populate more of our series with it. You know, and I and I think more than anything, it's like we're we're looking for that, right? Like I think what's heartening to see about Roma and I, we, we work with that casting director Lee Twilight it's like go find it. They exist. And I think what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm telling you and I want to tell your audience is sort of like, yes, it's slow, but more and more audience in Hollywood is ready because of producers like us and people like you, Jack, who are sort of saying, hey, it works. Like, don't worry. Like there's this, maybe this fear that you had, maybe, I don't even know why, because I've, I've actually never had that conversation. I've actually ne- and I would be honest with you if i have if been in rooms where they said like, don't put this thing. Um, I just think that they, again, I just think a lot of it's because like, they know this person, they just, they can trust them. They don't want to get fired. They put them on. I, I, it's so much of it's that. And you know, that is a component with sort of like, now we have all this great evidence that shows that it can work. It can pay off. So any producers that are still not sort of doing what I'm saying right now, I think they're the problem. Right. Right. But I, I really think that like, we're, we're, we're moving on. Like the evidence is there, baby. Like we don't have to be worried about like, how do we sell this? Like it's, hard cash numbers, hard as awards, like, we have it. This is the moment, like, don't, everything that we can see in Hollywood that's working is diverse, people of color, women, so don't be, don't be afraid, like, don't, don't, like, this is the moment to attack and keep saying yes, more and more, because it's working. And until, you know, the moment where it stops, we, we should stop.
1: Do you feel that general market content with Latinx actors is enough? Or do you feel that we need them to revolve around Latino stories to make it effective and influential?
2: I, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's not either or. I really want, I, I, I'm really of the camp of both and. Like, I, 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 love, I love general market Latino stories like Magnum PI where, you know, you, you see him and again, maybe he doesn't talk about it, but it's, he's still there and it's a powerful symbol nonetheless. Right. I, I do think that. But then I also love stories like me that that are very specific. And I see, you know, so to me it's you know, the buyers should understand that like you can do both. And I think what I'm heartened to sort of see is exactly the, the list of examples you started that we the buyers are starting to sort of highlight both and we are starting to see, see more and more. And as a producer, I'm excited to do exactly that, right? Like some of the stuff we have in development is very much sort of yes, it's about Latinos who are like my some of my cousins, right? Who really don't speak any Spanish, who really feel more American. And then I have other projects and developments that are very much like some of my other cousins who are very much like I'm Latinx. And I, you know, I believe, you know, and I think that's what's so great about our identity, right? That it is so diverse and so fluid. And I think what I'm excited and heartened to see is that as a producer, these shows are all working, right? They can all find their audiences. And I think that's the important thing, right? I think what's really genius about CW, and I think you know no one really talks about this enough, but like they've gone they've gone a lot of Latino because that's their young audience, right? The young the young population in this country is Latino, and they're right. Latinx. That's true. So if you're if you're CW and you're not doing that, you're kind of crazy. I you know it's you interesting. Know, really MTV it should lot, do the same that's thing. One of their
1: yeah, you know now that I think about it, MTV and any young network like Fuse or anything like that, they should probably sort of adapt the same concept. Uh, switching over to Spanish language media, oh, I know I know that you create content and develop content also uh, for Spanish language media. I know you guys did Camila La Tejana. Yes. Um, that was yes, sort of like, mundo. it just set like a new standard in visual production. Uh, so congratulations on that. How do you rate Spanish language scripted series today? Uh, not only because you're creating and developing for it, but outside of that, how do you see... Spanish language scripted series today?
2: I, I just think we're in the middle of the most incredible renaissance for it, right? I, I, I think now you just have so many more incredible Spanish scripted series. Because again, I think it used to be, you know, all these places used to be a monopoly, right? Televisa, Caracol, you know, amazing companies, but they basically had a monopoly on on their countries. And now with Netflix and Amazon has provided competition, Provided other writers an opportunity to get their content out there for Spanish language, either in Mexico or Brazil or Colombia or Spain, um, it's just incredible. Like now, we're really just seeing this incredible resurgence of production. I mean, for us in Spanish language, it's hard to get writers. <laughs> you know, it's, really, it's, it's, it's hard why to is find that? Writers, it's like it's, a lot of people are being hired. A lot of people are being hired. It, it, it. It's a really in Mexico right now. It's a really hot time for production. In Spain, it's a really hot time for production. Um, In Brazil, it's really hot time for production. And I think what's exciting about that is, look, not all these shows are going to be great, but I think that's the type of thing, right? Not every American show is held to that same standard, but like we're more and more going to are being made right now, and they're diverse. And some are comedies, some are thrillers, some are. So I just think that's something that just didn't exist before. Like, I mean, for me growing up, a lot of Spanish scripted it was just novellas. And I, look, I love novelas after, you know, I really can get hooked on them still. Um, but it's also like, that's not, that's not what today's audience wants necessarily,
1: right? You sound to be a very patient guy. Have you ever thought of quitting the whole industry altogether because of the amount of resistance that you've had on both ends, on both camps?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, this is really hard. Like, I try to... Like it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to hear no a lot. And it's really hard, you know, um, uh, to, you know, lead a team and, and to feel like you, you know, you want to keep delivering and to hear no so many times and to keep people motivated. Yeah, it's hard. And again, I think people talk about, you know, what's heartens me again, though, is that things are changing, right? That there is more light at the end of the tunnel. And I also just look at my own personal life. You know, two years ago I had, I was lucky to be blessed with twin sons and I I look at my twin sons and it really, thank you. Yeah, no, but it inspires me even more to really say like, yeah, like this is hard. This is not easy. But if, if I don't do it, if I don't, if I'm not fighting the fight every day, I just feel like we just need more of us. Right. And so it's, I, I, I do sometimes feel like I have to quit, but. I, every time, you know, I see a cut of a show like Mexican Dynasties or I get a call about some end out of the series, I, I'm heartened by the fact that, or even, not even my own shows. like I watched Spider-Verse and Miles yeah. Morales and I'm like obsessed with that incredible movie, like my favorite movie of all time, I think, actually. <laughs> I don't go to movies anymore because of the aforementioned twins, so I didn't see that many last year, but my favorite was Spider-Verse and I'm like, that's, that's why I keep doing it. So yeah, it's hard. But ultimately when I see stuff like that and I see it working and I see the audience and I see people loving it, I'm like, you know what? It's worth it. Every nothing in life comes easy. Mm. And I think ultimately I'm very blessed that I get to do this. I'm very blessed that I can. And I think that I, I sort of just feel like I, 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 can't quit. And, um, I'm lucky that, you know, we have some shows going on so that we can keep the lights on, right? Right. That's always helpful.
1: What advice do you then have for Hispanics who want to get into this business, but they hear, you know, podcasts like this and they read the articles and they listen to the Tom Brokaw comments and it just seems like the world is against us. You know, we continue to be invisible in so many, underrepresented in so many categories uh, that a lot of these guys are like, you know what, I'm just going to go play baseball and make millions of dollars and screw media and Hollywood and arts and culture. What advice do you have for them to stick with it? Why should they stick with it ultimately and see the light at the end of the tunnel?
2: I would just sort of say that to think about the power of media, right? I, I look about it, I think about it in my in my own story of, you know, when I was a young kid named Jaime and there was a movie named Stand and Deliver where a teacher named Jaime inspired his incredible class of East LA students to excel and they all got fives on the calculus AP, you know, calculus, what is it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that I watched that and that, and I, I'll be honest, like that changed my life. Right. Like I, it made me feel like, wow, like I, I feel seen, like people can do anything and I, I can do well. In, you know, I, It's not weird to do well in school and it's okay to be smart. And that changed my life. That movie. And so when people sort of say, you know, why why, why should we keep going? Why don't give up? Because it's like, because we need you. We need you. And I think it's because of comments like Tom Brokaw, right? Where I, I get incensed by it, right? And But again, it's like we, we have to keep on We have to talk to Tom. We have to talk to these people. We have to teach them. We have to influence them. And then, yes, am I annoyed that I have to keep teaching everyone every day sometimes? <laughs> sure. But it's also a blessing. Welcome it's to the club, blessing, man. Right? It's also a blessing to be able to. Yeah, but it's also a blessing that I get to teach them about my life and this incredible upbringing that I've had that was bicultural, right? I think so many times, you know, when we talk about assimilation, we're like, we're sort of implicitly shaming bicultures. Like, hey, if you speak two languages, that's great. If you don't, that's also great. You know, I just read this incredible thing from Richard Rodriguez, you know, mm-hmm. who wrote Hunger and um, you know, who who always is about assimilation and how Latinos should not speak any Spanish. And because that, you know, he, he sort of feels like, you know, Latinos should really speak the language of their conquerors. So they should speak English. And I hear that and I'm like, great, should. Sure. But then also people who speak Spanish are also great. Like there isn't, there's something so positive about our amazing life. And I think, and our amazing culture that needs to be shared worldwide. And I hear it. I hear it from everyone being like, they hate us. They don't like us. And again, it's not, it's not that they just don't know us. And so I'm with you. It's hard. It's really hard to be fighting the fight. But, like, I think that's why I'm so hopeful like, you're there, Jack, like fighting the fight. Like, we just have to keep going. And the more that we keep doing it, the more it shows that will exist, like, be that one day at a time. And to a point where, again, like, in the future, most – a lot of people, a lot of Americans are going to have their last name Gonzalez. That's a
0: right. A lot of
2: Americans are going to have their last name Rodriguez. And that's, that's the future. So I think it's about how do we help build that future to ensure that more Latinos feel – that they they are part of the American fabric, but they also can be uh, Mexican, and that's okay. Like it's by creating that content, it's by fighting the fight in Hollywood, and I you know it's it's incremental, and I know, and it's 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 hard, but we need we need people to help us sort of fight the powers that be, and then hopefully, you know, in the future, more of the buyers are Latinx, and it won't be even a problem, right? Uh, <laughs> hopefully Caponario one day is the the biggest studio in town and we're, we're buying, you know, we're, we're buying everything. Right. And so that, that changes the calculus too. So, but I would just sort of say that like my biggest advice to people is to don't give up, know that your voice is valid, know that there's an audience for it and know that you're going to hear a ton of no's, but that one, yes is all you need to get your voice heard and the world needs it. And I want to help do that. And you know, and there's other producers that also want to help do that, you know. And so let's join the fight together. Well,
1: Jaime, uh, honestly, just hearing you talk, uh, I'm already inspired to double down on <laughs> on my end uh, to do everything I can as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man, you, you you are definitely an inspirational role. Uh, I hope more people uh, listen to you talk because I think you have your head on your shoulders. And what I love about what Campanario is doing, it's, it's not ignoring one market or the other. It's including both. And there's a skill and uh, and a certain adroitness to be able to develop content for each market without ignoring the other. And I think you guys are doing a pretty good job. I know Mexican Dynasties is coming out February 26th at 10 p.m. on yep. Bravo. Looking forward to seeing that. And I think you can catch a couple of highlights on Bravo.com. Uh, just type in Mexican Dynasty. And I cannot wait for this uh, Selena scripted series that should be coming out in 2019, hopefully, right?
2: <laughs> you didn't hear anything from me. But I keep, 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 uh, keep well, guessing. I'm, I'm... Maybe when I'm in New York next time, we'll grab a drink and, and I'll share more stuff. Okay. Yeah, so, exactly.
1: Sounds good. Bueno, Jaime Davila, thank you so much for coming on the show and give us some, some insight on uh, the state of Hispanic content in uh, U.S. media.
2: Thanks, man. Thank you for having me, John. Really a big honor. Thank you.
1: And before I talk to John Henry, the 2019 Grammys are this week on CBS, and here's a listen at three Grammy-nominated Latin X artists that could win the big prize for Best Latin Pop Album: Raquel Sofia, La Persona Que Eres. For best Latin rock, urban, or alternative album, A Terciopelados, Play.
2: Soy ese vicio de tu piel que ya no
1: puedes desprender. And for best regional Mexican music album, Luis Miguel, Soy Lo Prohibido. Soy esa fiebre de tu ser que te
3: domina sin querer.
1: Alright, how many of you have had a great idea for a business but never had the capital or the resources to make it real? All those attempts at becoming your own boss that failed miserably and you just keep on scratching your head not knowing exactly why. Well, enter Viceland's new entrepreneurial show, hustle it's executive produced by alicia keys and celebrity chef marcus samuelson and it's hosted and created by john henry a 26 year old dominican american business entrepreneur who wants to help diverse business owners find that missing link to making their businesses go supernova
3: i'm john henry at 18, I started my first company, and within two years, I successfully sold that company. Now I'm working with small entrepreneurs to help them navigate the world of building their own businesses. John, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be on. So tell me about Hustle,
1: because I just think this is such an important show for our community.
3: Yeah, so Hustle is a, a show about the drive to make as a tagline, which pretty much means every, every episode, I work with one founder and help them grow their business um i, I kind of we co- coined this phrase like we help them 10x their business so <laughs> you know we want to take them from like hey small you know mom and pop shop kind of thinking to hey you can get to scale if if that's what you want and so you know it's really neat we work with businesses from all different kinds of industries there's a micro distillery there's a there's a company founded by two women that created the first oil for pubic hair there's um you know donut makers there's 3d printing shops you know there's really all kinds of businesses it's everything actually but tech and and that that was intentional because i think right now people find entrepreneurship synonymous with deep tech like ai and like all that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. in reality you know, entrepreneurs are anyone out there hustling and trying to build a business. So, right, a bodega,
1: brick and mortar, uh, anything that online uh, business. Uh, that's
3: right. That's right. Apparel, all kinds of cool stuff. How
1: do you pick the people you help on the show?
3: Um, quite simply, there's a casting company. They cast, you know, they cast a very wide net. Um, I don't have the time to like cast the wide net, but what I do make my absolute, you know, uh, core part part of my job there is host and producer is and vice is very good about this they give me a ton of creative liberty so i choose the company so the casting company will boil it down to like five to ten um finalists per episode slot and then from there you know we i kind of put myself in the shoes of the founder and i say okay if i were them how would i grow this business and i ask myself is is this a business that you know like could benefit tremendously from, you know, the opportunities that we can put in front of them. Sometimes we work with a business that is just a little too far along, actually. Right. Um, And like that doesn't work as well because like the show is about giving someone that jumpstart. And so, you know, it's it's fun to work with a business that already has millions in revenue because you can do more things. But the reality is like, you know, they kind of don't need the help. They just want the exposure. And so I look for entrepreneurs in that sweet spot of like, but, but the other side of that spectrum, Jack, is I don't like working with entrepreneurs who haven't already shown that they really want it.
1: How did you get the show developed?
3: I separately, completely separately from Viceland was kind of working on this show with um, this lady named Beth Greenwald, who approached me about three years ago, actually, and said, Hey, you know, let's do you know, I have an idea for to kind of develop a show around, you know, entrepreneurship because her father had, Im- or I'm sorry, her grandfather had immigrated um, uh, to this country, and so she always had that story in the back of her mind. And when she came across me, she was like, "Dude, you embody this story." Wow. And and I, I, you know, I found that appreciate. You know, I was grateful that she thought that, but at the same time, you know, if you get inbound from a complete stranger that's like, "Hey, let's produce a TV show," it's like, "Yeah, all right." right (laughs) but um but we we you know we did i I entertained it we kind of incubated the the thought process and actually alicia and marcus jumped on fairly early
1: okay how are they two involved in this are you friends with them how did this happen
3: yeah yeah no i am friends with with marcus um and alicia and i have become friendly through the show um but but yeah the way the way this works I'm not sure if this podcast of yours, Jack, is like business skewing or not. But the way it works essentially is right now what's in the culture is like celebrities and stuff getting involved with kind of entrepreneurial kinds of stories and and shows and media opportunities and things like that. And we pretty much we spotted – this opportunity credit to Beth. She was like, Hey, look, LeBron James launched, you know, the Cleveland hustle,
1: the barbershop, right?
3: The barbershop. There are so many kind of things bubbling in the culture. Black Panther obviously was a breakaway success. Like there's so many macro conditions right now in the environment that made this a prime kind of opportunity. And what we felt was like, Hey, the Silicon Valley business narrative is played out. Um, and, yeah, there's Marcus Limonis out there, but he's kind of like an old, like a middle-aged, like white dad. You know, he's like he just kind of doesn't have that cool. And we we felt like, and by the way, nothing wrong with that demographic, but we just felt like there was an entire market that wasn't being spoken to um, in in TV with respects to business and entrepreneurship and culture. So, anyway, we packaged a show. Um, we decided to come together and pursue it. And if something came of it, great. And if nothing came of it, you know, then fine. But um, that started the process. And so fast forward years, you know, literally years later, you know, we would end up um, securing Vice as as a network, Viceland. They were immediately interested in the concept. They thought it was really fresh. They had been looking for some creative that could take them to a more general market. Right. Because a lot of their stuff is like super, super edgy. Like like they have a show, Slut Ever, about like sex. They have like (laughs) Weedicad. They have Gaycation. They have like a lot of all the taboos
1: that you can possibly think of. They have.
3: Correct. And so anyway, they saw this and they were like, dude, not only is this on brand, but this also has the potential to bring us to a broader audience. So they, they bought the series and you know, season one was ordered and we just finished shooting it and now it, it debuts next week.
1: So how many seasons, uh, how many episodes in a season?
3: That varies on the show. In this particular case, it's eight episodes. And one thing I'm really proud of is we, we got eight one hour long episodes. Wow, and it's
1: an hour long. Okay.
3: They're, they're hour long. We were adamant about it. I think we probably could have gotten maybe 10 half hours, but... We we were pretty passionate about and adamant about um, making them one hour long.
1: Because, why, with the attention spans so short nowadays, why an hour?
3: You know, great question. And and we might actually suffer with respects to like, you know, viewers that watch it end to end, precisely because of that. But I think what we'll make up for, um, what we might lose in reach, we'll make up for it with depth. With um, you know resonance with our core target audience because I, I have a feeling that people are really hungry for some longer form, you know, business focused content. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, mo- there's plenty of like motivational, like short form kind of content on Instagram. There's not as much practical long form content, um, out there for people to consume.
1: So here's the thing that I want to know about. You're 26 years old, and you're so driven to help people. I mean, most 26 year olds are trying to get their first job out of college.
3: After I sold my first business, um, I was like, "Hey, I got really kind of shitty advice the whole time from who? You know, from From these exact folks, you know, like SBA, and you know, no, no discredit to them. Let me, let me, let me, because um, we're living in sensitive times. So let me just. R- kind of clarify and sometimes I speak strongly but the the SBA and all these kind of older business organizations like they're great because they've been around for so long
1: yeah they're the establishment
3: yeah yeah, that's right but what I didn't what I wasn't getting was any highly relevant wink I wasn't getting any (laughs) highly relevant advice for the for building a business now fuck a business plan dude you don't need a business plan anymore you don't need a 60 page business plan you don't need To open a retail store every time you, you know, what do you need? You need totally different shit. You need, you need all kinds of fresh thinking because here's, here's the reality, right? It's not necessarily what you need. It's like, hey, what's available to me now that wasn't available to me before that I could leverage to, you know, to my favor? Obviously, in, in my opinion, the biggest shift in all of culture is like media consumption and the fact that you, Jack, can now set up a microphone, you know, get in touch with some cool people and you have a fucking radio show. Like before, that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment, retail, fixed overhead and a deal with a distribution partner where they take, you know, a percentage of your profits. Like that that, you know, that was the reality of it. So anyway, anyway, all I'm saying is there were all kinds of things that were not taught to me or or anything. And after my first rendezvous, I said, "You know what? I'm going to I'm going to create an incubator in Harlem and teach exactly that. And and it was less so teach and it was more so let me create a space where this kind of dialogue can be fostered. Because when I started my incubator, I was 21, 22. I wasn't claiming that I knew more. I just realized that no one was going to do anything about it. And so anyway, the, the whole reason I bring that up is because that's what I had authentically already been doing for years. And then I started to fund You know, so then I started investing in entrepreneurs and, you know, me and my partners, we run a fund, you know, I'm not like really a show guy. Like I'm not a TV personality. I'm a businessman who happens to have a passion for communicating this stuff to our community specifically. And that's why the show works. The show wouldn't work if I was just, uh, you know, kind of a a TV personality that just, you know, that like um, interviews folks about a thing that they about business, you know, like if I were a business enthusiast, let's say, um, and there's value in that. There's commentators. There's people who um, who analyze the news for us on Yahoo Finance and Cheddar and so forth. But um, but it's, it's one practitioner to another. And and they did not build a show and invite me in. We kind of built a show around me, if that makes sense.
1: Why do you think there aren't many wealthy Hispanics or minority owned businesses in America?
3: Yeah, I've met very few uh, truly wealthy Latinos. One one thing about um, one thing about running a fund, Jack, that's very interesting, and and I don't know if um, I've found that folks don't generally have this understanding and context of how it works. But here's the way it works: first, you do enough work using your own cash to prove that you're good at investing. And then you actually, you go to, you know, very wealthy family offices, institutions, or high net worth individuals, and you convince them um, that you'll do a good job investing their money. So you invest on their behalf. And so when you hear someone say, hey, I have a $50 million fund, $100 million fund, it doesn't mean that they have $100 million. It means that they're managing that that capital. And the really powerful thing, Jack, and the, the thing that our community... Uh, hispanic and black have not um, been able to do at scale is you get a lot more influence and ability to impact impact when you manage large amounts of capital in fact i would argue i would take it a step further and i would say that the people that control like the gatekeepers of the capital on a very high level they control largely the the worlds of their views, like the views of life, that get perpetuated out into society. Right. For instance, right. Rupert, Rupert Murdoch on, owns Fox. Fox is a multi—you know—it's a multi-hyphenate. They own dozens of media properties, and sometimes you, you don't even think you're coming in contact with Fox, but you are essentially getting information from Rupert Murdoch's, you know, point of view. Um, and so, when so from a very, very, very high perspective. Our communities have not figured out how to invest capital at scale. And that's what we're after now to rein it in a little bit.
1: Now, what about interest, though? I mean, is there an interest to be to want for a Hispanic or an African-American to want to become business people? And I'm not talking just individuals. All right. An individual separates himself from the masses. I'm talking the masses. right? Right. The full community. Why is it that there doesn't seem to be a desire to tell mom and dad, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a businessman. Right. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be an athlete. I want to be a musician. I want to be famous. But right. I don't want to be a business person. Is that what is happening within? Is it mom and dad that are working so hard that they just don't have time to inspire kids, their kids, to do that? Where is this lack of interest in business uh, historically coming from?
3: It's media. It's media, Jack um perception so there's the four pillars of the country the four pillars are silicon valley which is all the tech dc which is all the government wall street in new york all the finance and the last one is la is media it's and like you know media plays an incredibly important role in society because it shapes the way it shapes our aspirations at large it shapes what's possible for us it shapes who we see doing what Um, and like, it's the reason that majority of the parts for like, you know, blacks is like, you know, gangbangers and for Latinos, it's, you know, like maids or, you know, like it reinforces everything. And I personally am going to change that. Um, that like, that's, that's part, that's a large part of the reason why I invest so much of my personal resources into building out content, hosting the show is an opportunity. But now, but now. And, and what I mean by that is the more you see someone who looks like you doing a thing, the more you know that's possible for you, right? So now taking it a step further, I do believe though at the same time that not everyone needs to, needs to aspire to want to be a business people. So my whole role and Harlem Capital's role is to say, okay, the people that do have that desire that come from our communities but don't have the know-how can we bridge that can we bridge their desire with the know-how to get them to the end result because i'll tell you man the last 3 years that i've been investing we we now we manage a 25 million dollar fund so we're it's not a huge fund but we're we're getting our weight up we're we're that's right and the amount of things that you learn that have actually nothing to do with the business has everything to do with soft skills intangibles what networks you came from who you know like that shit is real, man. Like motherfuckers do deals on the golf course. They do deals at Jewish, you know, Shabbat, Shabbat dinners on Friday nights.
1: <laughs> right. You know, like,
3: these dude, it's real, man. And, and our communities have no really like no understanding of, of just how historically disadvantaged we've been, but we don't need the whole community to get on board. We just need to make sure that the people, you know, every movement requires a catalyst so we need like dozens of leaders to rise up and that would be enough.
1: Where, where do you get your aspiration? Who are your influences that have made you the person you are today? Why do you think the way you do?
3: Um, well, my so, yeah, my mom, I, I would just I would just back up and say that the the entire reason why I'm driven is because of my mom and dad's immigration journey. Like, that is the reason I do everything I do. Like, I could make all the money in the world and still be indebted to them. It would never even be a tenth of what they had to do to get here, right? And, like, that's the immigrant path incarnate, right? It's like you feel, in some ways, it could be a hindrance to your development as an individual if you're not careful because you feel the weight of your parents' immigration journey on your shoulders. At least I did. I do. Um, But then what that that does actually strengthens you. Um, you know, I, I was responsible for helping out in the house early, and that's why I was able to, I had to think about money and stuff kind of early, and that kind of cut my childhood short, not going to lie. But at the same time, you know, I, I just started thinking about shit that matters long term way fucking sooner than your average kid. So that's that's what shapes kind of my, my inspiration. But aspirationally, dude, I, like I just – I want – like I love what Jay-Z has done, man. Jay-Z went from like, you know, a kid in the Marcy projects to being a global icon and letting people know, hey, I'm not just a rap star. Like I'm owning NBA franchises. I'm buying, you know, I'm owning, I'm making sure that we as artists can own our own masters and licenses through title. You know, he's doing so much for the culture right now. And I want to get to that level.
1: Do you have any Hispanic influences? Like what's the Hispanic... Jay-Z equivalent for you? Or do they not exist?
3: I There are a bunch of guys that, like, are doing a lot of really cool stuff. But honestly, if you're asking me my personal, honest kind of assessment, like, right now, I know a lot of the kids are, like, really hyped up by Jay Bademing and, like, all these cats. But, like, that's just not where my aspirations lie. You know, in terms of, like, a uber-culturally relevant, you know you know a cat that's like doing it on a high high level people will be in the conversation but like that's nowhere near you know jay-z warren buffett style you know level like i want to take things to great extraordinary heights so the person i look up to is who i feel i can personally become in 40 years if i if i stay focused you know because i i haven't seen that person charted out in the history books yet Hmm. and and you know i think I think it could be me. So, you know, I, and, I, and I don't say that in a way of like, hey, it could be me. I say when I look at objectively, like, you know, I've put myself in position to potentially have some big impact. It's not going to be a given. It's not going to come easy. But I'm so driven by this, this like mission. I'm almost consumed by it, man. I really want to change the way blacks and Hispanics see, you know, see themselves, see like you know, who it looks like that's successful in business. You know, I see it every day, dude. Like I own property and there are kids that hang out on, on my block and like, they're just wasting their time, man. And it it kills me because I've tried to motivate. I've tried to say, Hey dude, I have some construction work for you. Like, you know, let's do something. But you're right. Like there's a disinterest and it's a systemic thing. It's a deeply rooted systemic thing. And it's going to take a generation to solve but i'm i'm here for the cause
1: how does an ordinary person with a great business idea get scale
3: so the type of scale so look there's a two-part question here first you ask hey how come we don't own our own media conglomerates and you know things of that nature and then and then you ask hey you know how can ordinary individual get to scale so here's the thing we don't need everyone to be managing billions of dollars What you need historically, if you look at the way that the markets have played out, because industrialization wasn't a thing until, like, the 50s, man. Like, before then, people just worked, you know, the labors of their hand, and, like, there was no such thing as scale, honestly. And then when industrialization happened, you know, the railroads, the the boom, steel companies, and then Madison Avenue, so then media came about. So we've only seen scale, honestly, play out over the last 70, 80 years, right? Correct, The way that they were able to consolidate, if you study the markets, was like a a few, just a handful of players were able to raise and uh, capital. So you aggregate money that's already out there, you aggregate it, and then you put it to the work. You put it to work in one sole purpose. So someone comes together and says, Hey, I'm going to create a massive media company, you know, to, you know, massive media company, massive cosmetics company, beauty, this and so forth. And so what we've been missing as a, as a culture is, is that pillar for us? We need a minority owned mega fund yes. because, because then the average person doesn't have to go through this arduous journey of getting to a billion dollars. We've done that. We need just a handful of mega funds. And I mean, mega funds that have a mandate and say, Hey, look, you know, all or at least a, a healthy percentage, seventy-five percent of our dollars are gonna go back to Latino and, and African American communities. And that that perpe- that flows over because then what happens? Then a media company, let's say an entrepreneur who's got a business, you know, who's got a business that makes hair products or makes media or technology or whatever, they'll get funding. Then then, you know, then there's high quality um, employment available for are kids that come out of school and they finish their degree in computer science and they get a $60,000 a year job to start and then that helps them you know spend in the local communities which enforces restaurants and you know like it 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 takes really a lot but so what i'm not say- what i'm not saying is hey you need to want to have a billion dollars what i am saying is factually we do not have any mega funds that have a diversity mandate, none. And as long as we don't, as long as all the managers of capital are old white guys, and by the way, I do not think that they're ill-intentioned. I don't think that they're sitting there throwing their heads back and saying, how trickle-down economics, we're not gonna fund black black people and Hispanics, but I do firmly believe that subconscious bias is a thing. In oh, fact, statistics, absolutely. statistics support it. 89% of venture investors are, are male, and thus 89% of venture-funded investors are male. Same thing with, with uh, race, and uh, like something like 90% are white, something like 90% are white, right? So, so what, I guess what I'm saying is we need people who look like us from the top down, manage the flow of things.
1: Do you recommend that anybody who has an idea, and a business idea, do they have to be a business person first? Do they, do they need to go to business school? Do they need to go to vocational school, uh, a class online about business in order to do a business? Or can you just go and say, you know what? The idea will sell itself.
3: No, I I think the way I'd answer that question is if you had something on your mind, Jack, that was so present in your mind, so present, and and it was coming back to you so often, and you were thinking about it uh, when you were lying awake in bed at night, and you were thinking about it in the morning, and in your your regular job, you find yourself doodling ideas like, If you have something that really captures your imagination that actually, honestly, kind of the time flies by, it's it's going so fast, you know, like you love it so much. If you have that kind of thing going on, then I would then I would view that. Let's say you use twenty thousand dollars, that twenty thousand dollars of you really going for it. That to me is the most beautiful thing that can happen. It's like, man, yes, there's risk but like you love this thing so much that like you're okay with the result, either way it shakes out. That to me is when I know it's a worthwhile pursuit. Now, a totally different mindset is like having a a more capitalistic mindset where you say, okay, let's, uh, all right, so here's this idea, like here's the viability of it. Like I can make it, I can make this and start selling, you know, start selling it and recoup my money and stuff. That I think we are missing a little bit but I don't think it's a bad thing, honestly, if you weigh the if you weigh the risk and you still say, dude, I just I want to do this no matter what, like cause I just love it so much and I kind of don't care how it shakes out. Like if you can find something like that for you, then that to me is a win. Ir- ir- irrespective of how it shakes out. Just cause you I, I'm so much more a fan of like people doing what they love than like tolerating some shit that they hate doing just for the sake of being safe, so to speak.
1: John, last question. Hustle. When people watch this, what do you want them to take away from it?
3: Um, I want, Wow, well, I want people to take away, wow, a very, I want them to take away a, a much clearer picture of what growing a business is like. And, and my goal, my absolute best case scenario, hopefully I'll be able to flash back to this part, to this exact moment, but my absolute best case scenario is if this show becomes a cultural reference, um, around business, like in the same way that people are like, ah, you're going to go on shark tank. You know, shark tank has successfully become kind of a cultural reference, right? Um, but their show is very different from ours. I, I love their show; it's fun to watch. And like when you're watching with your buddies, like you kind of become the sharks, you know, when you're watching it because then you you offer feedback <laughs> and like you say that was cool, that was dumb, whatever. Like for me, Hustle is a, such a different type of show because it shows the buildup up until that point where you're ready to pitch, and and like if people can walk away with a, a much more accurate and real sense of empathy. Um, and also like, like if you can be empathetic towards founders and walk away also super pumped to want to go and try your shit, then, then the show's a win to me.
1: John Henry, thank you for being on the podcast and the name of the show is called Hustle. You can catch it on Viceland on February 10th at 9 PM. John, thanks again, man. Uh, I think this topic is not only important for Latinos and minorities, but I think it doesn't hurt to know a lot about business, especially in today's age.
3: Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It's really a great time. I think you asked some fresh uh, and kind of inspired questions. So I appreciate that. To anyone listening, uh, if you want to connect with me, um, I answer absolutely every DM and comment uh, that I get on Instagram. Um, So hit me up on there. This is a challenge, by the way. If you think I'm bluffing, hit me up on Instagram. uh, and I will absolutely reach back out to you. And I, also, I pump an obnoxious amount of content out there because, <laughs> and, and it's all like business and, and kind of oriented and stuff like that. So, if anyone wants to kind of be in that mind space, um, hit me up. We'll connect and we'll make it pop.
1: All right. And what's the uh, IG account that they should uh, hit up?
3: Oh, gotcha. Uh, if they just look up John Henry, they should find me. My handle is John Henry Style. Um, but if you look up John Henry uh, I think I'm the only person that kind of ranks so Find me, connect, uh, and thank you so much, Jack, for having
1: me on. And that's it for episode 103 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Jaime Davina and John Henry for joining me, and I hope you guys enjoyed the discussions as well. If you'd like to support the show, please spread the word on social media and tell your friends all about it. It's through your word of mouth that our show can grow. You can reach me on Twitter at Official and on Instagram at JackRico. Also remember to tune in this Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. for a brand new episode. Of Taller del Consumidor on Telemundo, and then right after at 11 a.m., catch a new episode of Consumer 101 on NBC. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant.